Trump has pled not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in New York, the financial capital of the world, and yes, that's a crime. But what happens next with the court dates, the DA turning over records and witness statements to the defense, and the inevitable rollout of motion after motion by the defense to delay this trial? And just who is in charge of the Trump defense team anyway? And why is Boris Epstein, this year's Michael Cohen, sitting at the defense table yesterday anyway? He's already got his own problems with the feds. Then we'll talk about Trump's pile of losses before the DC Circuit Court, uh, where who's now forced his inner circle to testify before multiple grand juries. The latest is that court of appeals rejected his emergency appeal. And come on down, Mark Meadows, Stephen Miller, and a parade of other Trump insiders, including national security advisors of Donald Trump, will tell you why and will tell you what happens next. And finally, Republicans have to be troubled for their party's national fortunes following Dobbs and ripping away what had been a U.S. constitutional right for a woman to control her own bodily autonomy, with the results in the $40 million Wisconsin Supreme Court race for one open seat to tip the balance of power, liberal or MAGA. The liberals grabbed it. And what does that mean for abortion rights and new electoral maps in Wisconsin and the nation for the next two years? You know what happened, but find out what happens next on the midweek edition of Legal AF with Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Karen, watching you on all the news shows over the last months and days reminds me of that chant from Ted Lasso about Roy Kent. You're here, you're there, you're everywhere, but now you're home with Legal AF, and we're so happy to have you on the show following a week that will go down in history. How are you? Exhausted. It was, it's been intense. I mean, it's, it's my old office and I've never been more proud of my old office and, and seeing the work that they have done and the fact, of course, it's the Manhattan DA's office that's going to go down in history as uh, the office that did something really important and brought the first criminal indictment against a former president. Watching the evolution of Karen Friedman Ignifilo, both as my friend, co-anchor, and on this show, just shows you how fair we are without really pushing a narrative. Because I know in watching you and working next to you, in the beginning, you were a little sanguine, a little disappointed with what you could observe about the pace of the office after Alvin Bragg initially got in over a year and a half ago. Why did Mark uh, Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn quit? Why isn't Alvin Bragg picking up where Cy Vance, your boss, left off? You know, I'm. this is not a happy day for me. These were things that I heard you say, but the turning point, I think, for all of us is there's, bef- there's before Mark Pomerantz quit noisily and wrote a memoir, and there's after Mark Pomerantz quit and wrote a memoir. So talk to us a little bit about your mental evolution that got you to the point where you are now, which is, of course, acknowledging Alvin Bragg and what he's done to come out of the shoot first with an indictment. So just was in the beginning, as you said, I was a little bit frustrated because it wasn't just Mark Pomerantz. There was another lawyer with him, Carrie Dunn, who I worked with for many years, who I have tremendous respect for. I didn't know Mark Pomerantz. I never worked with Mark Pomerantz. So I had no opinion of him one way or another. And I also knew how much work not just the two of them, but others in the office had put into the larger Trump organization case involving the valuation of assets. Uh, I didn't know the specifics of the case, but there was 
a feeling from uh, largely just where Mark Pomerantz and, and Carrie Dunn were at the time that Alvin Bragg became uh, district attorney, that it was time that they felt that the case was ready to go and ready to go in the grand jury. And I believed at the time uh, that it probably was ready to go into the grand jury. But again, that was just more from knowing the prosecutors, not knowing the case itself. And of course, I didn't know Alvin Bragg. I never worked with him. And so when Mark Pomerantz left very dramatically, when Kerry Dunn left, by the way, you didn't hear anything. He just resigned. And then when when uh, Mark Pomerantz left, he left very dramatically, and he cast a lot of aspersions on the office, on Alvin Bragg, on the ADAs who were there, and it made many people say that they were somewhat concerned and concerned about the office, concerned about uh, DA Bragg, and and he said several. Mr. Pomerantz said several things that again made several people worried is, is the best way of putting it, I suppose. And so I was disappointed. I was disappointed because I had thought that perhaps the office had lost some of its gravitas and that Alvin Bragg wasn't uh, the prosecutor that we had hoped he was when he was elected DA. Since then, and that was just a gut reaction, right? It was no, I had no information other than his leaked, uh, his leaked resignation letter and, and, and news articles and news reporting. Since then, however, so much information has come to light about who Mark Pomerantz is, his judgment, uh, and frankly, the fact that Alvin Bragg has really remained steadfast uh, throughout this time that the case and cases were still open he was still investigating them and he wanted, he just, it was more that he wasn't ready to go forward two months or, or into his brand new tenure as Manhattan DA. He wanted a little more time and, uh, and Mr. Pomerantz wouldn't give it to him. And so rather than allowing the, the, um, allowing the DA to get his, his sea legs a little bit and understand the case and perhaps, uh, make his own decision, which is what Cy Vance allowed him to do by not bringing the case purposely. He turned it over to 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 um, to Alvin Bragg to evaluate it for himself. And Carrie Dunn and Al and Mark Pomerantz resigned. Uh, and Mark Pomerantz clearly didn't want to wait, and clearly thought his judgment was more appropriate and better than the elected district attorney. So since then, as I said, Alvin Bragg has continued to investigate the cases. He has patiently said without raising his voice, without being dramatic, without talking inappropriately about facts that we are all desperate to hear. He just kept putting his head down and doing the work and saying, the cases are open, the cases are open, there's still open investigations. And since then, he was also handed a, a case involving the Trump organization involving 17 counts that 
that was already an indictment and he he staffed that with his lawyers and he got a conviction 17 count conviction against the trump organization and then he turned to the case that was indicted this week involving the first time Donald Trump engaged in a conspiracy to interfere with an election, that being the election of 2016. And he turned his attention to that case. He thought he had developed enough evidence to prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt. And in addition, that case uh, was about to, the statute of limitations was going to run. So it was now or never on that case. And that's where we are today. And I just, he, he, Actually, my, my opinion has changed because he's done what every prosecutor should do, which is put your head down, do the work, actions speak louder than words, not write a tell-all book, and you know, just really, he's done a great job. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great understanding of you with your insider knowledge, but observing the office from the outside and how you've evolved and, and, and reached the point where you are, which is obviously very proud of the office and all the line prosecutors and career prosecutors, most of which you worked with and they worked under you when you were the number two, who are now um, the ones that are getting the indictment from the grand jury that are going to try the case. Um, probably not Alvin Bragg, but somebody very senior there that's going to develop and work up the case moving forward from indictment. Before we get to some of the nitty gritty of what is a statement of facts? How is that different from the indictment? Are they the same? Are they both charging documents? And what do they say in the statement of facts that are important to the world to know what the actual charges are? Let me talk first. We switch to the other side of the table and go to the defense because there's been a change in the defense team for Donald Trump just 48 hours before he entered the courtroom yesterday for his arraignment. And if we can put up, Salty, that photo, leave it up there for a moment, because I'm going to talk about, um, this looks like a terrible version of The Last Supper. This is, uh, uh, I'm going to start from the far right forward and end up at the first chair closest to that, uh, that uh, uh, deputy for the uh, courtroom. On the far right, in a three-piece suit, the balding gentleman is Boris Epstein. Boris Epstein is effectively the consigliere for, my, for Donald Trump now. Um, he stepped into the shoes that were once worn by Michael Cohen. He is invest, he's being investigated by the feds, by Jack Smith. His phone has been seized by Jack Smith and all the content taken off of it. He's already lost an argument about attorney-client privilege related to that. Um, and they're looking at him related to everything from the fake elector scheme and putting that together all the way through Mar-a-Lago and everything in between. The other reason he's in the room, but 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 not a trial lawyer, but sitting sitting there on the other side of Joe Tacopina, is that he brought to the table the new defense lawyer, uh, Todd Blanche. Let's put the photo back up. Todd Blanche is sitting in chair number one, looking up at the guard. Susan Necklace is next to him. Susan Necklace is the defense lawyer who tried and lost the case against the Manhattan DA on behalf of the two major Trump organization um, entities for 17 counts of felony tax evasion and books and records uh, fraud, which is a similar count to what's found here. So yes, you can indict an entity or a person for fraud related to books and records. And yes, you can get a conviction in the state of New York in front of a jury, a unanimous conviction, because it happened 17 times. That's Susan Necklace. But we call in the business, who's who's in the first chair? 
That's the lead trial lawyer. And and Todd Blanche, who literally left his million dollar law firm practice because they didn't want him to represent Trump to go on his own three days ago to represent him. He's in, he's in chair one, Susan Ch- Necklace is in chair two. Donald Trump there looking forlorn slash angry slash confused is in chair three. And then babysitting him and being given what effectively is a coloring book and crayons is Joe Tacopina. He's He's been charged with sitting on and babysitting Donald Trump. That's why he's on the far end of the table next to Boris Epstein, who thinks he's the mastermind of this whole legal team that's there. So there's, that's the change. I think we're going to see a lot more of Todd Blanche. He spoke the most. Uh, that's what the reporting is in the courtroom in front of Judge Mershon. I think he's the new lead trial lawyer, assisted by um, uh, Susan Necklace, and then on down the line. Joe Tacopina, I think he's still there to be on, like I said, to color in a coloring book and to go on television and try to do trial balloons of defenses and ideas and concepts. Um, I don't know if if uh, you've ever had the opportunity uh, to be against um, Todd Blanche. I know you know Susan Necklace well. What about Todd? What do you know about him, Karen? So Todd was the lawyer that was brought in when when we brought a prosecution against Paul Manafort. If you recall, he was prosecuted federally and he was uh, pardoned by Donald Trump. And Cy Vance brought charges against him that were similar, but not exactly the same as the charges for which he was pardoned. And Todd Blanche came into that case and he successfully legally uh, litigated that case and got it dismissed on double jeopardy grounds. So I'm sure that is why he was brought on to the legal team because he successfully beat a case uh, against the Manhattan DA's office on legal as opposed to factual grounds. So I think that's, that, that's my guess to why, why they brought him in. Yeah, just for our legal AF law students, um, the double jeopardy is you can't be tried twice for the same crime, even though one was federal and and um, he got uh, there was a conviction and then a pardon. The real estate loan issue that was a fraud that was being brought by Cy Vance, Karen's old boss, lined up so similarly in terms of the nucleus of facts, the supporting facts that the appellate court in New York found that in that case, it was effectively being tried for the same case, uh, same crime twice. Some people might be saying, well, why was Bannon then who got pardoned? Why was why is there a state prosecution of him about build the wall? And that's because the facts are different. The um, indictment is different. The, the, the uh, It's not a double jeopardy, even though Bannon tried to raise that issue as well. Um, and Paul Manafort, so, Paul Manafort yeah. was the chairman of Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. So just for people who don't know yeah. who, who that was, he, he's a Republican strategist and, and you know, he's, he's definitely in, was in Trump's inner circle. As we move into the information, the, um, the statement of facts and the, and the indictment, the supporting statement of facts and the indictment, and we get into the 34 counts, the real meat of the thing, the thing that everybody's reporting on is the, is the 20 or 30 or so paragraphs of detail in the statement of facts. Explain for the audience um, and for me <laughs> the, the, the difference between the statement of facts and the actual charging document of the indictment. What's the purpose of the statement of facts? Is it, is it 
uh, seen as as a just a part of the indictment? Is it a separate document? What is what does the defense shoot at when it moves to dismiss? Is it the whole thing? Why don't you explain that to everybody? Okay, so when a person is indicted by the grand jury, that an indictment is generated, and an indictment is a document that has the charges that you are being charged with, and it says, you know, the grand jury in the county of New York, you know, charges you with X, Y, and Z. And here there were 34 counts. And the indictment that you see there involving the falsification of business records is very common it's very common, or I should say, it's 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 it. That's what an indictment looks like. Uh, that's very illustrative of what a, of what an actual indictment would look like. It's we call it bare bones, and that's how they're all written. There's nothing special or not special about it. It's 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 the defendant in the county of New York on or about X date uh, committed the crime of falsification of business records in in the first degree. Um, it's you know it's just very simple it's the legal language and, and then it says you know by writing a check or something like that it's 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 just the most bare bones notification of what the charge is and and what the theory is so some were checks some were invoices etc and uh there is a slight exception um to a bare bones indictment and that involves certain charges uh that in that have a story component to the charge and that's so so one of those types of charges is conspiracy conspiracy is the crime of of two or more people agreeing to commit a crime together and then they take steps to accomplish that crime and those are called overt acts and that those conspiracy indictments when conspiracy is charged there's a couple other char there's a couple other crimes that are like that one is an organized crime or rico is a talking or speaking indictment there's a couple other um charges that would would give lots of facts but conspiracy is the main one and and several people had speculated will conspiracy be in this indictment just so that alvin bragg has an opportunity to give more detail and to talk about the entire factual basis of the case. And so, for example, if he had charged conspiracy, it would say uh, the defendant, along with unindicted co-conspirator lawyer number one and unindicted co-conspirator CEO of, of, of a media company number two, uh, agreed from the beginning of the election to the well into his presidency to catch and kill stories, you know, have a scheme to catch and, and kill stories to try and influence the election. And, and it would have sort of overall language like that, that would talk about what the scheme was. And then it would give overt acts, which are all the facts that are in furtherance of that conspiracy that you intend to prove at trial. Um, and, uh, I believe that, frankly, they probably should have charged conspiracy. That's what but, I was going to ask you. I was going to so, ask you. Yeah. The 34 so counts I, don't include that as a count, right? Yeah, they do not include it. And I'll get to my feelings about why they did and why they didn't and why I think they should have in a minute. But let me answer your question first. So they clearly made a choice not to charge conspiracy. And so they were left with a bare bones indictment. and. Obviously, uh, in this particular case, that 
wouldn't have been enough. <laughs> and there would have been demands from the defense and the public to, to be given notice of what, what they're being charged with in detail. And so there's a concept in the law called the Bill of Particulars, which is something that uh, usually um, in the past, I should say, uh, the prosecutor would be required to give to the defense to give him notice of what he was being charged with. And so you do a Bill of Particulars that would have a lot of these facts. And it's a way, it's it's something so that a def the defendant can then say, okay, I am going to, I, that's how they know what mo motions to make, right? They'll know, um, oh, I want to make motions on the statute of limitations, or I want to make motions that the felony that you relied upon doesn't uh, bump doesn't qualify as a bump up to uh, for falsification of business records. I know we'll get into that in a minute. Or I want to make um, a motion that the Susan McDougal facts should be kept out because that's Karen prejudicial McDougal. and it's uncharged. Sorry, Karen I McDougal. do the same thing. Karen, I know, you, I know. Sorry, um, you know that that Karen McDougal. Um, that she that that those facts are prior bad acts and uncharged crimes, and those 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 are overly prejudicial and shouldn't come in. And so so those are the types of motions that I anticipate will be made. And the bill of particulars is something that would inform the defense of all of the facts that would be uh, that that would apply that they could. Um, make motions about. Now, why didn't they call this a bill of particulars and why isn't it a bill of particulars? They just decided to call it a statement of facts and that's what it, cause that's what it is. And that's what they, they filed. Um, prosecutors are doing less and less, are providing less and less bill of particulars now because uh, in January of 2020, the laws in the state of New York changed and um, and now we basically have open file discovery, which which we didn't, did not have before. And when we didn't have it before, the prosecutor's file was closed to the defense until the very end of the case, right before trial, which, and so that's why prosecutors had to do a bill of particulars because that was the only way defendants could know exactly what they were being charged with. Nowadays, now that we have open file discovery, there's less need for a bill of particulars because they're basically just going to get the entirety of the prosecution's file. That being said, in this case, they decided that the defense would have wanted notice and of course the public would have wanted notice. So, so this is not uh, done in every case, but it's also not never done either. So they decided to create a statement of facts and, and file it. Uh, and, and, but I think it's risky for them to have done it this way. And what this means, by the way, is this is the evidence that was presented to the grand jury. This is what the grand jury heard and more, but this is the gist of what the grand jury heard, of what the facts are, the evidence is, the law is, and what they voted on, okay? So this is the grand jury presentation. I still think it's risky and still think they should have charged conspiracy. That, that's what I want to talk to you about. First, I, first quick question, then I want to get into exactly what you just said that you want to talk about. First is, is the combination of the statement of facts and the indictment the charging document? No, just the okay. indictment. Just the indictment, right. 
but it, it is now traveling with this other thing, which used to be a bill of particulars, but now because of the rule change and all that you've identified properly uh, and the need for the public to know, but now giving the defense also some sort of roadmap, they, there's this statement of facts. That's why right. we all got excited during the live version that we did on the Midas Touch Network yesterday, where we had, I don't know, 50,000 people watching the group and I was participating with, you know, we only got the indictment first. We're like, and I've seen indictments, of course. I've, you know, I've drafted things that look like indictments but aren't indictments. And it's like thirty-four counts of this business record and this general ledger and this check. We're like, where's the meat? Where's the, where's the, you know? And then you get into the statement of facts and you find out about the story to kill the illegitimate child uh, rumors uh, and the and Karen McDougal, the Playboy playmate. Not named by name, but by woman one and woman two, Stormy Daniels and Doorman one. That then we got all what we needed to see. So I want to hear from you though before we lose that that thread. Why, if you were in the office, if you were the one that was their boss, you know, and you were working with Alvin, let's say, why you wouldn't have done it this way, and how would you have done it? That's what I think people want to hear. Yeah. So okay, first of all. Falsification of a business record in New York is a class E felony, which is the lowest level felony. Conspiracy to commit a class E felony is actually an A misdemeanor. And so, and that's just the way it goes. The only way to make it a felony is if it's an A, B, or C felony that they are conspiring to do. But since they're conspiring to commit an E felony, it's an A misdemeanor. So I know that was, I just know because I know how the office works, I know that there was lots of discussion about whether or not it's worth it to include a misdemeanor. And I also wondered whether it was beyond the statute of limitations, because uh, there's a two-year statute of limitations for a misdemeanor. I wondered whether that was the reason they didn't include it. But then when you think about the time period involved, you know, a, a conspiracy is an ongoing crime. I think they probably would um, still be within the statute. But uh, there's a there was a question I think that they must have considered about whether or not they it's it's worth it to charge a conspiracy. A what if you lose the statute of limitations? Then Trump will go nuts. You know, see, I, I won, I, I I won this charge, and um and and I got a charge dismissed, and he would he would make a mountain out of out of that. Um, so that could be one of the reasons. The other reason I would assume they didn't charge it is because, again, it's just a misdemeanor. And so what's the point? Um, what's the, what does it add? And so why risk the jury compromising and acquitting on felonies? And, you know, because he's, he's dead to rights on the conspiracy. And I think it's, it was a strategic decision for them to... Um, to not charge a misdemeanor because if you have misdemeanors and felonies on an indictment, sometimes they might juries might compromise, and it's not it's counterintuitive that a, that the conspiracy, which is seems like the most serious charge, and it would be on top of the indictment on the very top, even though it's the lowest charge probably because it it, it tells the story, and so it seems counterintuitive that a conspiracy would be a lesser charge or a misdemeanor than the felony. And if the jury had some issues about the legal theory that they're relying on for falsification of business records to bump it up to a felony, then maybe they might compromise, and so they don't want to risk that. So I would guess those are the reasons they didn't charge conspiracy. Uh, I, however, and, and those are legitimate concerns, and, and I think that 
it's perfectly legitimate that where they landed. I just happened to land on the other side. And I think that they should have charged conspiracy. And the reason is I wouldn't want to risk. I mean, all 34 counts in the indictment are about Stormy Daniels, 100%. And the legal theory that they're relying on to bump this up to a felony. So false. So just to go over the elements of the crime really quick, falsification of a business records is a misdemeanor in New York. And the elements are of that crime are with the intent to deceive, you falsify a business record, right? And it, it's very just, um, it's just very simple. And there's no doubt that Donald Trump did that crime. It becomes a felony if your intent to deceive and defraud uh, involved trying to, the intent to uh, cover up, conceal, or commit another crime. And so there's been a lot of speculation of what is that other crime and why is it not charged in the indictment? if they were going to commit or cover up another crime. Why is that not charged in the indictment? Oftentimes it is in other cases. And so there's a lot of um, a lot of speculation about that. Alvin Bragg in his press conference and in the statement of facts yesterday outlined what the crimes are that he believes they were intending or, or Trump was intending to commit and or conceal and that was a federal election law violation, a state law viola- election law violation, and tax crimes. So those are the three crimes that they are alleging Trump intended to commit or conceal. Uh, I, I'm sorry, those three, but it was the conspiracy to commit those three crimes. So it, it, an actual conspiracy charge so that that two or more people conspired, that would be Trump, Cohen, and Pecker conspired. That means they got together and agreed, we're going to catch and kill stories in order to influence the election. We are going to block and tackle, right? We're going to kill the stories uh, of the people who are trying to uh, hurt Trump, and we're going to promote stories of your opponents. We're going to, you know, other people's negative stories, we're going to find them and we're going to put them on the front page of the National Enquirer. And anything bad about Trump, we're going to uh, suppress. And that's the criminal conspiracy. And we're going to do that to influence the election. We're not going to, and we're not going, and we're going to pay people off, which in and of itself isn't a crime, but we're not going to claim it as uh, election contributions. And P.S., we're going to also make it so that it looks like legal fees. And so we don't have to pay, it's not income. And so you don't have to pay income tax on it. You can just deduct it. So, so that's the legal theory that it was a conspiracy to commit those crimes. And Alvin Bragg's office, the DA's office is saying the conspiracy, the agreement to do all of that and evidence of that includes the doorman and Stormy Daniels from this long period of time. And I think that's risky. I think that's risky because it's, yes, it was relied on in the grand jury, but it's not, it's not a charged crime. And it's not an overt act in a conspiracy. And I think one of the legal arguments that the defense is going to make is that it's a prior, it's a, it's an uncharged crime and uncharged crimes are typically not allowed in a 
criminal prosecution uh, because, in, because they will say, yes, it's probative, okay, it's relevant, it's probative, it's helpful, but it's overly prejudicial. And so some judges will keep that out. And so there's going to have to be a ruling on that, I think. And to me, it's risky. Whereas if it was in the conspiracy and they were overt acts in the conspiracy, the conspiracy to catch and kill, right? Scheme to scheme, you know, to catch and kill stories and throw the election and the overt acts, the things they did are pay Karen McDougal, pay the doorman, pay Stormy, you know, all that, then it's your overt acts. Then, then it is a charged crime and no one will keep it out. So I think the, I, I personally think it's slightly risky not to do it, but they're super smart lawyers. And I, you know, think they, I, 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 if they decided not to, they have a good reason not to, but I, like I said, I lean on the other side. So there's a mismatch, which is what we're talking about. There's a mismatch between the statement of facts, what used to be called the Bill of Particulars, and all of the facts that are listed there, from the Karen McDougal, woman number one, Stormy Daniels, woman number number two, the doorman and the illegitimate child rumor that was killed, which is all there. There's a mismatch between that and the charged crimes in the indictment, as you, Karen, pointed out, all of those 34 all of them, all those entries would would appear to support only the case involving uh, Stormy, uh, Stormy, uh, 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 Stormy, period, and not Karen McDougal and not the doorman, so that you have that mismatch. Now, I guess you can clear that mismatch up later with a superseding indictment, which is an indictment that comes later, which which I guess the office could bring at the appropriate time. But right now you've got this mismatch and you're saying that potentially the defense could use it to the disadvantage of the prosecutor's office, understanding that the prosecutors knew about this mismatch and must have done it for a reason that we're going to follow. And and just so I can uh, kind of summarize it and then um, kind of just wrap up this particular segment, in the if we put up uh, uh, the statement of facts for a minute, the way it's broken down, the way to read it, if you want to read it on your own, is that you start with paragraphs two and three, and that sort of gives you what Karen's referred to as kind of this overarching conspiracy, the catch and kill, or um, or as Ronan Farrow, who discovered it as related to the doorman story, called it the um, uh, the uh, he called it the. Um, the buy and the buy and burn or something. I forget what he called it, but whatever he called it, it's the catch and kill. And then if you go to paragraph seven and nine, you'll see the meetings between David Pecker and what we now know is Michael Cohen in Trump Tower to devise the scheme. In paragraphs ten and eleven of the statement of facts, you see the doorman and the and the Matt Calamari, along with the rumor of an illegitimate child for the nineteen eighties. And that story being killed for $30,000 and a payment on behalf of Donald Trump in the election. In 12 and 14 paragraphs, you've got the Karen McDougal story. She's identified as woman one. And in 16 through 21, you've got the Stormy Daniels part and all of it under this overarching catch and kill 
conspiracy. So um, that's how that all runs. And that's how we learned about, I did a hot take on the doorman, whoever, I mean, we thought with 34 counts, there was something else going on, but really the, the counts don't match the statement of claim, the statement of facts anyway, because as you said, it's all about Stormy. If you added all these other people in, this would be a hundred, a hundred count indictment, and it could still be in, in the future. Um, was there anything about the statement of facts that you found interesting before we turn briefly to Judge Mershon, the attacks on him, the attacks on his daughter, and the decision on the gag order, which Judge Mershon has already uh, already ruled on as of now for what Donald Trump can and cannot say? Yeah, I was surprised because I didn't remember this fact if I once knew it. Well, first of all, I didn't know about the doorman. And for five seconds, I, I thought, oh, my God, is there a love child? And I realized that's been you know, that's been debunked. But but when that first came out, I that was surprising. Um, the the second thing that was that was truly most surprising to me was the uh, the invitation that that Trump invited Pecker to the White House once he was elected to thank him for helping him win the White House, which is exactly what uh proves this crime that this was about the election. So, so uh, I think that's pretty good evidence. So yeah, that that's the one thing I found in the statement of facts that I thought was great. It, I thought this is a pretty strong case. Yeah, I like that a lot. They stuck that in there. I also liked for me, the one fact that was in there, and then we're, we're going to let one of our sponsors help us keep this show moving, um, is the, is the I think, a dig at Donald Trump and one of the defenses that Joe Tacopina and others were floating, which is the Melania defense. Oh, he didn't do it to help himself in the campaign. He was embarrassed about it with his wife. And so that's why he had Alan Weisselberg and other people at the Trump organization fraudulently make entries into the books and records. Records, as if Melania goes down to the office and checks the books and records. Putting that aside, it turns out that David Pecker and the American Media International National Enquirer publisher, they made false entries in their books to cover up the $150,000 payment that they made to Karen McDougal, the playmate. So I'm sorry, they were doing that to cover for Melania too, because Melania was going down to the National Enquirer. Okay, all the, you could just see the silliness about these defenses. But before we move on and we go on to our next segment, let's have a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Miracle Made Sheets. Whether you want to get more fit, be a better parent, or get more done at work, there is one thing that will help, and that's better sleep. With Miracle Made Sheets, you can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation, which has been shown to improve deep sleep quality by over 20%. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made Sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Clean sheets mean less bacteria to clog your pores and fewer breakouts and other skin problems. Go to TryMiracle.com slash LegalAF to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And with Mother's and Father's Day right around the corner, this is the perfect way to give someone you love the gift of better and more luxurious sleep. Save over 40% and be sure to use our promo code LegalAF at checkout to save even more and get three free towels. 
Miracle is so confident in their product, they backed it with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf and use the code legalaf to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash legalaf to treat yourself. Thanks again to Miracle Made for sponsoring this episode. You know, it's a tongue twister that I didn't realize. Three-piece towel set. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> I found that out when I did that ad. So before we leave this segment, because I'd be remiss if I didn't take full advantage of the big brain of Karen Friedman and Niffalo on these things, the defense is going to be filing a flurry of motions. We'll be following them on Legal AF and on Hot Takes. The ones I've heard about so far, I want to get your opinion. Change of venue, move this thing to Staten Island where all the Republicans in New York live. I think that dies. That gets done through the appellate court. I don't think that'll work. I want to hear what you think. Motion to dismiss the indictment because of all the things that you identified, some of the mismatch, some of the uh, staleness of some of the crimes, the federal versus state crimes, all sort of in there together. Although you and I nailed it. We said there was probably tax evasion was going to be one of the crimes because he's covering it up in his books. He's taking a tax deduction and he's avoiding paying taxes. That sounds like tax evasion. Don't forget. Don't forget. You don't you don't have to have completed the crime. Right. You have to have intended it. You didn't have to actually evade. You just intended to evade. Exactly. Um, and then and then lastly, this is where I really, this is the inside baseball that only you can give us, which is what you can do with the grand jury minutes when you get your hands on them and try to argue that the charging decision and it was corrupted in some way with the grand jury. What do you think? We want to know. What do you think? If you were a defense lawyer, which you are, what would you do next? Don't give them all the secrets, but give them a couple <laughs> of them. So I would argue a couple of things that the statute of limitations has run in this case, and that the times that uh, the prosecution is relying on to exclude um, or press pause didn't count. And so it's beyond the five-year statute of limitations. I would argue that uh, you can't use a federal, a federal election law uh, as the if you intended to commit a federal election law violation, since it's a presidential election, the federal law would control that state law can't you can't intend to violate a federal law. It has to be state law, even though it doesn't say that anywhere in the statute. And then I would argue that and you can't rely on state election law because it was a federal election. So no election laws count. And so it has to be a misdemeanor. I would argue uh, the, I think those are the 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 big arguments that I would make. I would also argue that the grand jury presentation was defective and that um, that the uh, it, the evidence wasn't sufficient and that they charged them on the law wrong because they had to specify different crimes and not this crime. I mean, there's, there's lots of legal and factual arguments you can make about the grand jury minutes that you don't get to do federally, actually. This is a purely yeah. a, state, uh, a state thing that you get kind of a, a bite at that apple. I don't think any of those are going to go anywhere. And I don't think they have any legs. Like you said, I don't think the the venue and move this to Staten Island. I mean, what he, his, his argument is I can't get a fair trial in New York, but I would argue that the reason he can't get a fair trial in New York, if that's true, is because he, of the things he's doing, he's threatening right. the prosecutor, he's threatening the judge, he's 
cause threaten the jurors threatening for attention. Yeah, he he's exactly he's he's you know the re, he says oh I can't get a fair trial because there's too much negative media attention against me. You're creating that, and you can't create your own mistrial or you can't create your own media frenzy because then think about it. You know he's trying to get the judge off the case because he doesn't like this judge by threatening him. But think about the precedent that would set. That would mean any defendant who doesn't like the judge in front of them, all he has to do is threaten them. Or same thing with the prosecutor. Uh, so well, I, I well you two know, observations on that and I and I agree one and 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 we slipped into a little New York ease you and me and I do it occasionally but but for those that don't sit in New York when we say New York in that context we mean Manhattan and it's one of the five New York is one of the five boroughs and comprise of as opposed to New York City which which encompasses Staten Island so he can't get he says he can't get a fair shade in New York slash Manhattan this is the same guy who said he could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and get away with it so I thought he was beloved in New York slash Manhattan not not that and then you're right that you you can't conjure up your own reason why you can't get a fair trial by polluting the waters so much. It's like the old line about the person that kills his parents and then asks for mercy because he's an orphan. That you can't do. So I agree with you. I think all these, but the time delay, and I know that other agnifilos have been on television, the time delay could push this well into the campaign, couldn't it? Yeah, it could. I mean, he look there's so many there's so many things that are going to happen between now and then i mean so the the, the next court date is is in december and there are several people who are saying why so far away why is it so, so pushed out so far and it's, i think it's to account for all of these motions that the judge is giving the defense plenty of time to make all of these motions and uh then the prosecution gets to respond and then the judge will or make it, you know, render a decision, and they'll come back in December. I think that's a reasonable period of time to make all of these motions to, and have sir replies and replies and 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 get to a final final in December. That's about the right amount of time, and and there's really no reason to come back before then. So they call it filing off calendar, and that's what being filing off calendar means. Meaning, uh, we don't have to have an actual court appearance where the defendant has to come, and then you have to close down the streets and have a motor and security. I mean, it's it's such a pain every time he comes to court and defendants have to come to court, unlike civil cases. So, and, he, and he's quite gonna, going to be quite busy coming up in the near future, right? In three I want to talk about in three weeks time. In three weeks time, he has his rape case that he's going to. Yeah. But before we talk about that, I just want to say one other thing. Despite the fact that we aren't scheduled to come back to court in December, just there's a little something nudging me, uh, you know, pulling at my, my, my little spidey senses are, 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 are tingling. I think that we are going to be before the court much sooner uh, because there was something in those minutes from the proceeding that were closed, the arraignment that just happened that was closed that I read where um, the, the prosecution wants to turn over their, their discovery, the open file discovery, right? The contents of their entire file. But what they said was, we will we'll do it, but with a protective order. And what a protective order is, it means that it's for your eyes only, for it's for the defendant's eyes only and the lawyer's eyes only. It's, it's to prepare for trial in this courtroom. And they want a protective order. And, and, and the prosecution said, and we're very close to having uh, a joint protective order with the defense um, to, uh, and then, and it'll be that it can only be in the lawyer's office and you can't release it and, and you can only use it to prepare for court. Uh, and 
And as soon as we have that judge, we'll file it with you and then we'll turn over the discovery. Um, and so I have a feeling that's going to go off the rails and that they are not going to reach consent because I just can't imagine that this, this group of lawyers sitting at that table are going to agree to that because Trump is going to want to try this case. He, he's going to want to have a trial before the trial in the court of public opinion. And so what he'll do is he wants to get those documents and release the ones that he thinks helps him hold back the ones that hurt him or dump the whole thing out there so the defense lawyers of the world can pick it apart and and do his defense for him and and the court of public opinion can trash the case and then he really won't get a fair trial yeah. because the jury will have had this mini public opinion trial uh it, you know before the actual trial well, and so, well judge but judge Marchand is no fool so i i don't think but he that's buys why that. i think there's going to be a court appearance yeah. before december because i think well, we're going to have to come back to sort that out one last thing before we move on to the next segment, as fascinating as all of this is, I would like to try to see if we can get the other two in today. The the, the question I have is, and it kind of ties back to when you were in the office with Cy Vance, and there's now reporting, including your old boss on in his interviews, that he was asked by the Bill Barr Department of Justice to step back on continuing to investigate uh, Michael Cohen and ultimately Donald Trump. Um, related to many of the things we've talked about on this podcast today, and that he deferred. Um, the question is this. First to indict doesn't mean the first to try a case. And we have um, Fulton County, which I believe will be, if everything goes according to their plan, the next regular scheduled grand jury is in May. <clears throat> so it would be conceivable that Fawny Willis would present her case now having had it fully prepared in May and reach an indictment in May. And then Jack Smith in one of three or four grand juries, let's say Jack Smith between now and December, which I think is very highly likely, indicts Donald Trump and others um, related to one or all three or more of these major issues before the grand jury federally. Will What would happen if, if the Department of Justice called up uh, Alvin and said, we, we, we're going to go first, step back? What do you think would happen? So it's it's the way it has to work is the federal judge would call Judge Mershon and say we're going to go first. It's really that this is the, this is now the court's calendar and the judge is in charge. So the it's it so that that's that's who's going to make the decision of who goes first and who doesn't, and that's between the judges, and that could go anyway. <laughs> so the federal judge does a big foot. Because of any kind of federal primacy, doesn't doesn't get to Bigfoot the state court judge, right? That's a great question, and I don't. Judges typically are more; they don't get in public fights like that. Typically, mm -hmm. they usually sort things out very civilized. So, I actually don't know if it, if it came to right. blows, what would happen. So, what uh, was Sai talking about when he said he stepped down because? DOJ asked him to. Oh, so that's the investigation. That wasn't that yeah. wasn't the trial or the case. Mm -hmm. So, so that was just the investigation. So, so Cy Vance, uh, well, so the, the DA's office was investigating, had a large financial um, investigation into Donald Trump regarding all sorts of issues, and we hit a roadblock because we needed his tax returns. We he was primarily being. Uh, being investigated for tax fraud and um, or tax related uh, crimes. And the uh, 
former president refused to give over his tax returns. And so a grand jury subpoena was issued The went all the way up to the Supreme Court twice. Ultimately, they got the 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 um, the tax documents and weeks later, or short time later, brought the Trump organization indictment because that's what they were waiting for to do that. In the meantime, when they were doing this big case, the, so this, and this happens in the Manhattan DA's office, this is not unusual. Uh, oftentimes in big, especially white collar investigations, but sometimes some big violent crime investigations, you bump into each other and one office is investigating something and the other office is investigating something and you bump into each other and you figure, and, and they figure it out through uh, either, either through law enforcement or other witnesses who say, oh yeah, you know, Manhattan DA's office, you want me to come down? Yeah, I just got your subpoena, but I'm already cooperating with the Southern District or vice versa. So that's how law, that's how the offices find out about each other. That, oh, I didn't know that the other office had a um, had an open case, or I should say an open investigation. And so the prosecutors then pick up the phone and have a conversation and say, uh, which one does it make sense to have this case is, you know, and, and sometimes it's very clear. It's the Manhattan DA's office has this big sweeping case with lots of witnesses, lots of evidence, and we're this close to get going in the grand jury. And the and the Southern District is like, oh, we just got, got started, so it's better that it go here. Or sometimes you bump into each other and it's like, well, you know, Southern District, you know, the, the feds have better laws that are more suited towards this crime than the state, so you take it. And so usually it gets worked out. Every once in a while, there's a turf battle. And every once in a while, it uh, it gets ugly, and um, and this appears to be one of those situations where the Southern District called up the the Department of Justice or the U.S. Attorney called Psy, and that's when you know it gets ugly because the line prosecutors aren't working it out themselves. When it goes <laughs> U.S. Attorney to DA and the bosses, yeah. it's ugly, and they just said stand down. And you know, frankly, they can do that because they could, if they wanted to, they could subpoena our entire case file and our witnesses. I mean, they, they have that power. They don't really use it, but they could. And so when they say we are taking this case stand down, we don't, the DA's office kind of doesn't have a choice. And they did that here. Bill Barr did that yeah. here. And so Cy stood down on that case. So, and that was the, the Michael Cohen situation. Um, and, and so, so Cy said, okay, but we're going to do the other bigger financial case. You take Michael Cohen and this election interference case, mm -hmm. we'll take this other case. And then this other case, that's, that's the case that, that went and ballooned and got bigger and bigger. And they went to the Supreme court and then COVID happened and, you know, which delayed things. And at that, by that time, by the time the Michael Cohen case was, was done and finished and, and Trump had no longer been president, Cy Vance was well into that other case yeah. and then the Trump org. And so that, that's how, what that meant. So, yeah, that's great. We just, we just got some great inside knowledge there of what happens between states and state and federal prosecutors and what could happen here. We're going to talk in the next segment, next two segments, about what just happened to Donald Trump um, in the other wheel of justice, Jack Smith's prosecutions, and why having seven or eight of the inner sanctum of Donald Trump, including four of his top national security advisors, and now Mike Pence, it's been reported, will not appeal 
the order that is forcing him to testify before the grand jury, ultimately against Donald Trump. We'll do that in the next segment, but let's hear from one of our sponsors. And now let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Green Chef. Green Chef has expanded their menu. Now choose from 30 recipes weekly with the option to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box without changing your plan. This means you can order vegan one day and then keto the next. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with dinners that work for you, not the other way around. Bring more flavor to your table this spring with Green Chef's wholesome elevated recipes featuring seasonal organic produce and unique farm fresh ingredients. Eat well without having to sacrifice taste. Also, Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. Green Chef offsets 100% of their carbon footprint as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. My wife and I absolutely love Green Chef because of how easy it is to cook the meals and how delicious each meal is. Our favorite recipe is the Parmesan crusted chicken. It is incredible. Go to greenchef.com slash LegalAF60 and use code LegalAF60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash LegalAF60 and use code LegalAF60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. And now back to the video. Jack Smith is piling up um, wins in front of all things grand jury, starting with Beryl Howell for almost two years straight then the chief judge who stepped down after her term was over. She's still a federal judge, but she's no longer the chief judge. And he's he's winning, still winning in front of Jeb Bozberg, who's the new uh, chief judge of all things grand jury in the District of Columbia, where Jack Smith and all of his line prosecutors are working feverishly to get an indictment against Donald Trump, both for Mar-a-Lago, fake electors, interference of the election, the failure to peacefully transfer power, Jan 6th, the grift of raising hundreds of millions of dollars on the back of a big fat lie that Donald Trump was a part of. That's all going on. We now have new reporting today that uh, Jeb Bozberg, the chief judge last week in his the first win for the Department of Justice, um, ruled that while Mike Pence did not have to testify literally about what he was doing in the in the Senate chamber as the as the Senate president for that moment under the speech and debate immunity. He had to testify about everything else related to Donald Trump and the failure uh, of the a failure for the of the transfer of power and conversations he had with Trump and others about um, not certifying the election and the fake elector scheme and scandal and all of that. So he is not going to appeal that uh, to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and certainly not to the uh, Supreme Court Court of Appeals. Donald Trump has uh, had appealed earlier this week to a new three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court that turned out, because it's randomly selected, not the same panel that had ruled against him the week before. That was a different panel uh, that he lost. Um, but this is a new panel, and it came up Obama, Obama, Trump. Uh, those are the three judges and who they were appointed by. And those judges, either two to one or three zero, it's hard to tell because it's still a secret docket protecting the secrecy of the grand jury, but they ruled against him in a, in a, a record time. I thought the last round of, of appellate briefing, which took place in less than 72 hours, we went from appeal, full briefing into the middle of the night and, a, and an order. Here, that th as Karen, you've once said, speculating that 
they're 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 tired of I'm paraphrasing, tired of Trump shit, and they just want to speed this appeal process up. They got the appeal on Tuesday night. They turned to the Department of Justice on Tuesday night and said, "Give us your response." The Department of Justice, God love them, in two hours filed their opposition brief to uh, uh, on the appeal of whether an entire list of of insiders within the White House and policy advisors and national security advisors around Donald Trump, including Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, Stephen Miller, who's been traveling with Donald Trump all the way through the arraignment process, Robert O'Brien, John Ratcliffe, and Ken Cuccinelli, an inner circle of national security advisors and homeland security advisors. Um, uh, you know, that's the group that Judge that Judge. Uh, uh, Beryl Howell, before she left the bench, said, you guys are all testifying. There's no executive privilege here. Go to the grand jury. Go, go, go. And then he took the appeal. And after a two-hour response to the Department of Justice, the court came back and said, no, emergency appeal denied. Now, Donald Trump, I had thought, would bring it to the Supreme Court. He's got to go through John Roberts, who's the sitting uh, judge who's responsible as chief judge for the D.C. Circuit. And he he does the first review, yay or nay, thumbs up or thumbs down in emergency applications. But they didn't try that the last time. And so it's unlikely, I think, that Donald Trump's going to try a Supreme Court appeal. So all of these people are going to go in. And the one I want you to focus on, Karen, is the reporting that the national security advisors for Donald Trump Robert O'Brien, John Ratcliffe, and Ken Cuccinelli have testified or will testify about Donald Trump's attempts in the waning hours of his administration to seize voting machines in order to continue to perpetuate his fake ballot, fraudulent ballot, bullshit scheme that he thinks Joe Biden executed for the 7 million, 7 million vote win. So seizing the voting machines and that this was not a national security interest. And he was told that Trump was told that by his national security team. In other words, you can't have a little mini martial law and go seize voting machines. What do you think of if that is true? And that is the reporting right now as of today. What do you think that says about where Jack Smith is in his prosecution on this angle? I mean, Jan 6 insurrection, here we come. I mean, he is in the grand jury presenting evidence, and I, I think he's in the thick of it. Uh, I, my question, you know, he's, he's very much in the thick of the, the meat of the presentation of this case. I wouldn't say he's at the beginning and I wouldn't say he's at the end. Uh, he is in the, in the meat of it. And, and that's the, the slog that it's going to take to prove this case that goes on for uh, many, 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 many months and is the second election interference case, right? The first being Alvin Bragg's. The second is, is the one that, that culminated in January 6th. And, these cases can take a long time to present, not just because it's a lot of information and a lot of witnesses. I mean, think the Jan 6 hearing, right? How many, they, they interviewed a thousand witnesses um, and, you know, summarized it for the American people by putting together those, those um, whatever, 10 hearings that, that they did and had certain people come and say things. Uh, but, but that's what a grand jury presentation is like. I mean, thankfully, the January 6th committee did some of the work for Jack Smith, meaning the select committee, meaning 
at least Jack Smith's team can comb through all of the depositions and witnesses and say, okay, this one seems really helpful. This one doesn't seem that helpful. This one I think is holding back. I want to go back and try to get them under oath and put them in the grand jury. And so at least it gives them a little bit of a roadmap of, of how they want to streamline and, and put this in the grand jury. But it's very clear that now we're at the, the voting machine part of it because that's where all these national security advisor types come in. And they're, they're going to talk about what the president at the time, uh, Donald Trump, who's now defendant Trump, uh, they're going to talk about what Trump knew and didn't know what he was told and what he didn't tell. It goes to his mindset, his intent on January 6th and on when he, when he, um, when he, called and asked for the, you know, said, find me the, you know, the perfect phone call, find me the 11,780 votes or, uh, you know, all of his other, all the other things that he did, he's saying, no, it was a perfect phone call. I, I just wanted them to find votes. These are the types of things that go to his intent. All the times he was told that it's not a national security issue, or you didn't win the election, or there aren't missing ballots, or there's no evidence of hidden ballots underneath a table. All, all of the things he was told is very, very important because it goes to uh, his knowledge and his intent, which is critical for a criminal case. So I, I think that this case is getting ready to go in, into the let's vote on this case and charge phase. I have a question for you, though. Um, why would the lawyers appeal once, but not all the way to the Supreme Court. What strategically, what what goes into that decision? I think that they think it's a dead dead on arrival, um, and they don't want to go through the embarrassment of having precedent set by the Supreme Court that they are reading the tea leaves. They think it's going to be negative to them. It's hard to believe. I know for the for for most people to think what Donald Trump doesn't want to go to his handpicked Supreme Court over and over and over again. Look how well he's done, but he has not done well. Even with this Supreme Court controlled in a supermajority by MAGA, MAGA appointments, but uh, in the area of everything that matters now, presidential records, he's lost. Um, everything related to testimony, he has lost even before now. So they don't want to keep going back to that. Well, I mean, you know, the definition of insanity here, you know, is playing out, and they don't want to. But they're then, not then insane. Why but then why even appeal the first time? I mean, you know because what I mean? They might, because they might get a good ruling if they get three, if they get two Trumpers or a Bush and a Trumper or a Reagan and a Trumper as one of the three. You know, you only got to convince two out of the three and they want to take the shot just like they did at the 11th Circuit in different places. The interesting thing is how these how these lawyers that are at one point appearing before the grand jury, testifying ultimately against their client, are then appearing later on that same day or later in the week in front of other federal judges. Like Evan Corcoran is either a witness or he's he's advocating for Donald Trump like every other day. Evan Corcoran and Jim Trustee just ran to Jim Boesberg, Judge Bo, Chief Judge Boesberg, and asked him to stay the uh, the uh, Judge Beryl Howell's order forcing all that seven or eight people that I just identified to testify before the grand jury while they took the appeal. So it wouldn't have to be an emergency, just be on a, a slower track. And Chief Judge Boesberg said, 
not on your life. And he denied it. So anybody that worried about how where Jeb Bozberg would come out after Beryl Howell, and we did so well with her, he's doing just fine. But that was Evan Corcoran who made that argument. Evan Corcoran, who testified before one of the very same grand juries that we're talking about, about Mar-a-Lago. And we have new reporting at airtime, as we like to say, that just as we suspected, Mike Pence got a very small win out of Judge Boesberg. Judge Boesberg found that for the limited purpose of when Mike Pence was standing with that gavel talking to the clerk of the Senate about vote counting, and he was acting under the imprimatur of the ceremonial role as a member of the Senate or as the Senate president, He doesn't have to testify about everything that happened in there. That's great because that has nothing to do with any part of the prosecution, but everything else he has to testify to. But of course, trying to find lemon lemonade out of lemons, you got Mike Pence's spokesman saying just before airtime today, the court's landmark and historic ruling, which is Jeb Boesberg's ruling, affirmed for the first time in history that speech and debate clause extends to the vice president. And having vindicated that principle, Vice President Pence will testify. Yeah, on a very, talk about stretching the truth, on a very small part of what happened to him on that day. He'll have to testify about hang Mike Pence, Mike Pence, you're a pussy, all the things that Donald Trump allegedly said uh, the Jan 6 committee developed in their fact-finding, to try to coerce Mike Pence and pressure Mike Pence to not certify the election, to certify the fake electors, you know, the, him being whisked away into the back of a waiting car by the Secret Service and him refusing to go in, all of that that we've always talked about, Mike Pence is testifying to. So we have that updated reporting. Let's go quickly, though, um, to a, a little bit of celebration. We've had a good week for justice, seeing former former guy come in and be uh, and be arraigned, um, and and the look on his face when that happened, and when the and when the uh, court officer slammed the door in his face because he didn't really care about him. But in Wisconsin, where this battle now for women's rights and women's reproductive rights is now happen- happening state by state. And that's one of the strategies that progressive Democrats are properly using, which is to try to use the state constitutions to try to find a woman's right to choose and go after bans there. And it starts with what is your highest court and what is its composition state by state? Every state has a the, the highest appellate court in almost every state but New York. It's called the Supreme Court for that state. In New York, it's called the Court of Appeals because we like to be different. And in Wisconsin, the the also another little quirk because in most states the supreme court or the highest court the people that get on there get on there through the governor the governor appoints them but not in wisconsin in wisconsin and some other states you uh, including in, in nevada and different places you can run you can run for office and the office you're running for is supreme court justice and so we had a battle that became a battle between good and evil between progressives and maga You know how I know that? Because $40 million of national money poured into that one little seat and the fundraising around it, the campaign around it, uh, which pitted um, Daniel Kelly, who's a fake elector MAGA guy, who is part of the fake elector scheme, total MAGA, who had been on the Supreme Court against uh, Janet uh, Protosewitz. Janet Protosewitz was on the Milwaukee Circuit Court, uh, civil court, yeah, circuit court there. And so she was running for the big court and she was running against a guy who used to be there. This was a battle literally of good and evil. And when she won, 
meaning that for the next two years, because Janet Protasiewicz won, there is now a liberal majority, four to three, on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, at least until 2025. That matters in new election congressional maps, what we call gerrymandering. That matters in abortion rights. And now, much to the chagrin of the Republicans, who in a very pissy, sour grapes concession, not even a concession, Daniel Kelly said he's not going to concede to his the woman who won, who's now who's going to be justice-elect Protosewitz because she's not a worthy candidate. Talk about mansplaining and misogyny. She's not a worthy candidate. And he said at the end, and I want to wish Wisconsin good luck because you're going to need it. I mean, this is this is writ large the battle of good and evil, and and if and this bodes terribly, I think, uh, Karen, for the Republicans because every major district race, judge race, special election that's happened since Trump left office has, all, except in one exception, has almost all gone to the Democrats' advantage as we get ready for the midterm, as we get ready for the twenty twenty four election. So. If these places, like a very cons- relatively conservative Wisconsin, although they now have a Democratic governor, if this is how it's going to play out for them now, you know, th- this is looking good for the Democrats. What do you think about the campaign and the win and what it means going forward for women's rights in Wisconsin? So putting politics aside for a second, you know, how, like different places have different cultures or different feels. You know, I'm from Southern California and I, although I love my family, I didn't quite fit in there. And so I moved to the East Coast and I've been here my entire adult life and I love the East Coast. I love New York. Um, But my favorite people in the country, truly, people I just think are the nicest, kindest, just the culture of the people, it's the Midwest. And I just, every every like friend that I've ever had, close friend that's from the Midwest, it's just like, just kind people, my kind of people who are just no nonsense, kind people who really are smart and do the right thing and do what they believe. And this, this, this absolutely, this Wisconsin uh, election, just really, I think, just solidified that feeling. And that's what the thought I had when I, when I, uh, when I read about this, I thought I love Wisconsin. I love the people there. It just, it's awesome because it's one thing to be, you know, it's one thing to be conservative versus liberal, or I believe this, but I don't believe that. And you have differences of opinion. It's another thing to be lawless and to be as Ben Mizellus loves to say a radical right MAGA fascist extremists, you know, how he how he talks about people. And frankly, this is an example of that because Wisconsin is a state that is divided 50-50 really when it comes to liberals and 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 Republicans and Democrats. And and it's really just a, a divided state that that the people are 50-50, the vote 50-50, and the the court was basically evenly divided. The the um, 
legislature typically, you know, it, it, it flips back and forth, but it's, it's not like a red state or a blue state. It really, it really is mixed. And, but, but the, but Mr. Kelly, who was running here, wanted to do things that were lawless and extreme. And I think one of them was his radical gerrymandering plan, uh, which would have been the most extreme in the country, where he would literally turn a 50-50 state into a six to Republican advantage in congressional seats. That's just not fair. You know, if, if it's a red state and you deserve to have all red seats, then you do. Or if you're a blue state and you deserve to have all blue states, you do. But to gerrymander, to stack the deck and make it so that that people are are not going to be represented and make it stack the deck six to two, I think is the Wisconsiners Wisconsin people said, no, that's not fair. That's lawless. And, and they weren't going to let that happen because if you did let that happen and you did let the, this extreme viewpoint come, I think there were a couple of slippery slope, horrible outcomes that would have occurred. One is abortion. And I think that women's rights would have, uh, just completely Wisconsin would have become one of the states where where women don't have bodily autonomy and don't have any rights. And I think the other would be would be this gerrymander plan that would give control of uh, of of the certification of the 2024 electors to the Republicans, even if they don't deserve it. If it's, I mean, again, if they deserve it, fine, but this would give it to them no matter what. And I think that that radicalization that that Daniel Kelly was trying to bring to Wisconsin, the the Wisconsiners said, no, not here. You're not doing that. That you've gone too far. And I think that's great. And I and I also love Janet Protasewitz. She makes me feel so much better about my last name that no one can uh, pronounce. But um, but she seems just great, and she's going to be a great judge. And I just it, it made me really have faith in this country that grassroots organizations and people who who really come together and fight can can fight back against this yeah. extremism. And we saw it in Kentucky too. You know, we're seeing it in places where we wouldn't naturally expect um, uh, progressives, women, and all to to overcome some electoral disadvantages and uh, win elections, win ballot initiatives, uh, and here win a Supreme Court. We know it's important to MAGA because they poured in the bulk of the $40 million into the race to try to get that seat. Um, and, and I think the ironic thing is this, is, this was allegedly a nonpartisan uh, election, meaning you weren't supposed to know who was the Democrat and the Republican. But to her credit, Janet Janet Protasewicz was very public about her platform for women's rights against all the redistricting and the electoral vote issue and counting and being able to undermine the our federal system as Karen outlined and all of that. So I think a heartening result that we wanted to report and talk about here on Legal AF, but we've reached the end of another edition, the midweek edition of Legal AF, where Karen and me sit on the corner of law and politics and we watch what happens and we bring it back to you with our analysis. And on Saturdays, I do a similar show. Sometimes Karen joins us, depending upon what our agenda is that day, what's on our list with Ben Mysalis. And we do a very similar curated show where we pick the top five or six stories ripped from the headlines that we think you should know 
in the politically charged litigation arena. So sometimes people ask, well, how can you help? How can we help the show? And it's all free the way you can help the show. We really appreciate it. You watch us, which you're doing now on YouTube, or if you're listening to us on a podcast platform like Apple or Google or Spotify, then kind of cross-pollinate. Go do the other thing. If you're if you usually watch us do this live or otherwise on YouTube, go listen to us and subscribe there or hit plus or follow, and that'll help the algorithms and how we get ranked. And a lot of you do that, and we are regularly in the top 50 globally in news um, in the top, and in the top 10 or 12 in news analysis worldwide. Um, uh, and we're up against some pretty heavy hitters, and we're, we're now holding our own regularly. And that's because of you, the Midas Mighty, and the legal AFers. And if you listen to us and you want to know what we look like or what what Karen what Karen's doing or what room she's in or what room I'm in or all of that, then you can watch us on YouTube and you can subscribe to the Midas Touch Network. And uh, we've just cracked one million. We're well over a million now. Uh, last week going over that million mark. And there's a lot of great content on the YouTube besides Legal AF, including a series of other podcasts that we we happily call our brothers and sisters like Political Beatdown, the Midas, the Midas Brothers, the Midas Touch Podcast, Politics Girl, um, Lights On, and the rest. And then we do hot takes, Karen, me, and Ben, and others uh, on trending takes every day, every hour, it seems, uh, to catch everybody up in these 10-minute bursts of what's happening in real time in the areas where we have expertise. So that's a place that you can go. And there's merchandise. If you want to walk around town with a legal AF, Wheels of Justice, or other type of shirt or coffee mug, we got those for sale. A lot of people like doing that and showing their support that way. That one's not free, but everything else that I described is a free way to fly the flag for Legal AF and show your support. But uh, Karen, I know I'm going to see you personally, and I'm going to see you on the television because you're here, you're there, you're everywhere. Karen Friedman Ignifilo, and it's always a pleasure to have you with me as my co-anchor. Anything you want to tell our Legal AFers a special customized shout out? <laughs> uh you guys always throw the last word to me, and I never. I'm always. I should be more prepared for this. I was going to say it is as if you you know it's coming. I know. I do know it's coming. So, yeah. All right. Well, this is. Well, that's good. Salty. See, salty threw us both a life preserver. Let me remind everybody that when Karen Freeman Ignifilo is not doing legal AF and is not doing CNN and all the places that she's she's seeing, she's a writer and she's a guest columnist on an op-ed piece that's running today in the New York Times about the very things that we talked about today, although we got a little bit more molecular and more interesting observations by Karen. But if you want to go, you want to read Karen Friedman Ignifilo, the author. Co-author. Co-author with with Norm Eisen, former ambassador. There you go. You can do it today. Go find a link to it. We'll put a link to it up on the chat tonight, uh, you know, while we're we're doing the live chat. Good to see you. (laughs) Good to see you too. We'll see everybody next week. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.